0: So I want to start this evening with uh, another poem by Rumi. He says, The breeze at dawn has secrets to tell you. Don't go back to sleep. You have to say what you really want. Don't go back to sleep. People are walking back and forth at the threshold where the two worlds meet. The door is round and open. Don't go back to sleep. So I want to begin by looking a little bit at the two worlds and whatever way it is in our own mind we create two worlds and you can think for yourself which ways the splits happen, which ways you conceive of this and that and make them absolutes and separated for example mundane and spiritual. Any of you do that? (laughs) Material world and spiritual world, one of the classic kind of splits we make. Life and death. Yes, there's a, a relative importance to the concept but in terms of how we kind of line up behind one and want to push the other one away. This is what we're interested. Dharma teaching is pointing, one of the things we're pointing to, is where, how we suffer, one of the ways we suffer, we make separation. Again and again and again. Classic, of course, is self and other. And we'll be looking more into that. That's It's not like I'm going to ask you, do you do that one? (laughs) It's like, yeah, it's very primary. Wisdom and compassion. Do you have a way you line up behind one rather than the other? And I'll give an example, because you may not exactly know what I'm talking about. I remember um, first retreat, I think, having some insight into pain, pain. You know, sitting there with painful things. Coming very close. Exploring it deeply. Seeing that it wasn't what I thought it was. As many of you, you know, it's a very... It can turn into something else, etc., etc. Important insight. There's some wisdom there. There's a little bit of wisdom there. Got home to my mum's sister-in-law was suffering from RSI. And it's like... Well, if she only knew it was empty. If she could just look a little bit deeper, you know, she'd get over it. I didn't say that, of course. But that was what was going on in my mind. Some wisdom, no compassion. Right? Emptiness and form. Lining up behind one or the other, emptiness and love, emptiness and metta. Giving our allegiance to one as if it's something that can be lined up behind as the real, ultimately, and not the other. Any of you, I remember on the first night, I think I said, what what arises when you hear the word empty, what arises when you hear the word Love. Either on the felt sense, conceptual sense, any sense. Do you currently have a? When you're lining up behind, you know, even subtly, it can be so, so, so subtle. It can be so subtle. A hierarchy. You know, one of the ways you might you might hear it is because um, emptiness is so deep, right? And we like deep things. It can very easily be this kind of uh, yeah. We're, we're, we're on the real thing here. We're doing the emptiness. It's like, yeah, you know, praise the emptiness. Here I, here I go. It's like, and those guys that do the love religion, well, they're just a little bit backward. Right. I mean, I'm caricaturing and exaggerating. A little bit like that. We, we line up behind something rather than something else. And in a fact, we can't help it from the perspective of self. We will do that and make a hierarchy. Huh. The classic one, the Shakespeare names for us. To be or not to be. Existence or non-existence. This is from, I've got a couple of verses from Nagarjuna, second century monk in India, who who is a radical, deep philosopher and practitioner. Also. He says, In seeing things to be or not to be, fools fail to see a world at ease. In seeing things to be or not to be, fools fail to see a world at ease. So here's the two worlds and Rumi's pointing to at the threshold where the two worlds meet, the door is round and open. That's where we get an understanding into the things that we divide. That's where we get the understanding of the end of division, actually. Personalness and universalness. Do you have a preference currently? You can see it in the meta. And there's appropriate times for each, right? When we're. It's very personal, it's very me and you, which doesn't ne- necessarily mean separation, right? There's a conventional thing. I'm not Hannah, right? We can go further with that, but yeah, on one level, that's so. Right, or the universal where it's kind of spread out and it's big and it's boundless and it's beautiful. We're just seeing then a little distaste for the personal all the other way around. All the other way around. <clears throat> and when You know, right at that doorway where the two worlds meet, where the door is round and open, don't go back to sleep, right? Going back to sleep is the part where we can't help it, but kind of line up behind one or the other. Falling asleep is where we come out of the direct knowing into the conceiving. Now, Dharma teaching is not anti-conceptual. But if the conceiving is our only doorway, it can be a very beautiful one and point us home. But if we're lining up there, the the, the function of concepts, as well as to point, is um, that they separate things. It's their function. It's not wrong. Concepts separate things. So you know by the time you're one, one and a half, You know, that one's mummy and that one's me. And it's really useful, right? It's not the ultimate reality, but it's really, really useful. And it's not just concepts about persons, it's concepts about things. You know, so we can draw the curtain. We can discriminate the curtain from the wall. helps us draw the curtain and not try and draw the wall. Right? So there's a kind of an intelligence in that. But the thing is, what happens is we take it for reality. And that's where we get stuck. So what happens for you when you hear that love is a concept? Which, of course, it isn't only a concept, but... What happens for you when you hear love is a concept or love is empty, two different things actually. And I picked this up because somebody left a note about this and they said, and I'm adding, but the gist of it was, um, when I hear that something of what I've opened to, valued, uh, loved, i.e. the love, somehow is negated, the wise ones say it's empty, therefore it's not real, and therefore there's a kind of boot put down on my experience, and I'm left feeling maybe hurt, angry, devastated. Right, what about the love? But it's important there to look at two levels. What are we taking it to mean when we say that love is empty? Are we immediately imputing not real as another ultimate position? As another ultimate position. There's another beautiful verse, very famous one from Nagarjuna. Where he says, you know, maybe near the end I can read you the whole thing but one verse of it it says buddhas say emptiness is relinquishing opinions believers in emptiness are incurable believers in emptiness are incurable when that gets reified when that gets made into god right One of the things we can also take it to mean is, okay, if love is empty, then that means somehow that empty is associated conceptually perhaps with um, a barrenness or a deficiency or a sense of obliteration. Right, that our mind may do that with it. Looking further, if we look onto the moment-to-moment level, which is really where we're learning here, the moment-to-moment direct experience, somebody might notice that they're opening to the love and it's beautiful and rich and all of those things. And it's as if they're being asked to let go of the, of the love. Right, it's as if we're being asked to let go of the love. And sometimes this is, you know, it's as if we open to the love in the sense of, great, finally, got some love, love it, great. And as if the sense is, God, I'm not going to let go of that. Because the only thing I know, if I let go of that, my association is that the atmosphere of consciousness will be barren, deficient, devastated, right? Does that ring bells for anybody? okay okay so it's a very common part of the territory actually when we're looking into emptiness it's not what emptiness is but it's a very close association for many of us and some of sometimes where some of the fear is around letting go and cold cold and if i get let go of love it will be loveless that's the other thing right it's not the truth but if i let go of love then there'll be lovelessness Right? Again, the mind, there's two things. There's the conceiving mind working there. There's also sometimes, as we uh, sense ourselves, some of the sankharas, the karmic formations, the old patterning, where, in our experience, it may have been that when the love wasn't present, the sense was of lovelessness, devastation, coldness, barrenness, etc., and that uh, karmic formation is very closely associated in that territory as we want to let go, as we drop more deeply into the stillness, the aloneness, the silence. Right? So that is a, a formation, if that is recognizable to anyone, you don't have to go looking for it. Right? You don't have to seek out our karmic formations. They come to us. Right? You see them during the day. But it's a formation that needs handling as all formations do when they arise Mm. handling with love handling with tenderness handling with wisdom oh yeah this too this too there's a self-image and a self-sense around a sense of deficiency barrenness coldness etc a patterning that is not the ultimate truth but when we start to, to walk the territory of letting go, it may arise for us. So I put that on the map for you, should it arise. And, you know, I began with this big picture, you know, life and death and form and emptiness, and it's it's really interesting discussion. If we again bring it right down to the moment-to-moment level and what we're working with this morning with the pushing and the pulling, right, one of the instructions. Have a drink. Um, Very clear, precise, simple and beautiful profound teaching of the Buddha, as they often are. When he's talking about craving and thirst, the tanha, as the word is in, in the Pali language, tanha, this thirsting, this hunger, this craving, he talks about th- three kinds, but I'm going to highlight two here that are pertinent to this. He talks about the craving for becoming, which is the Boa tanha the craving for becoming, which is like it's the, it's the one that's often more easy to see mostly in the world and depends who we are, what our personality does. But, you know, it's like I want to be. I want to become something. I want to become a better meditator. I want to become a better person. I want to become a vicar. I mean, whatever it is. I want to become. It's kind of in time. It's leaning forward and it's got this energy of becoming something that my orientation goes towards. And most of us, as, as meditators, can probably see the suffering in that. You know, we, we kind of it, it's it's fine to want to create and you know uh, do things in the world, but the becoming energy is where self gets invested, and then the vision goes to the and I'm going to be someone who, right? I'm going to be someone who everyone loves. I'm going to be so, I'm going to be someone who everyone hates. I'm gonna I'm gonna be something, I'm going to become something. But very brilliantly he also talks about the craving for non-becoming, right? The tanha the craving for non-becoming. I crave that too. It's a little bit more like the death instinct in a sense, like I crave the non-becoming. It's like I'm tired of the world, I'm tired of all that becoming, and it's more like a leaning back not a leaning back in relaxation, but a leaning back and contracting back from the world. And it's very easy for, and normal actually, that that would show up in our spiritual practice, especially if we're attracted to silence. Not necessarily. Does that ring a bell for anyone. The craving for non-becoming is like, no more becoming. Don't even make me say anything, do anything. Right. I beg your pardon? Yes, no more thoughts, no more world. Like, get me out of here. It's got more that quality out of it. it? And broadly speaking, I mean, you can have, they can work both ways, but more commonly, the spiritual ego is associated with non-becoming because we see the kind of uh, momentum in becoming. We want to release that, relinquish that, but then we can have a whole other ego that's kind of hiding out. Hiding out and non-becoming, right? Or trying to non-become. It's a craving. Both are suffering, actually. Both are suffering. And we go between the two, of course, you know. Of course we want to become, you know, there's lots of threads in the motivation. I want to I become a good meditator. And it's beautiful. It's not even unwholesome. It's not even unwholesome. I want to become a good meditator. But it's the I-sense, the craving, the thirsting, the leaning that already has that tension and that craving that we were speaking about. We were. Rob was speaking about it. It's the royal we. So it might be, yeah, I want to become a good meditator. I'm going to Guy House. I want to become a good meditator. And then we don't become the good meditator because actually as we meditate... It's not I that becomes it. There might be good meditation. There might, there will be deepening. There will be opening. There will be insight. But you know, it's kind of despite ourselves, really. And then it's like, oh, enough meditation. Get me out of here. No more becoming. And we think no more becoming looks like leaving, leaving the retreat. So it's a very, it's a both the, the bhavatana and the we Bhavatana have this tension in them have this tension. One is physically a little bit more like leaning forward and the other is a little bit more like leaning back, shrinking back. And our seat, and we're going to negotiate the territory, our seat is in that threshold where the two worlds meet, where we're neither leaning into becoming nor non-becoming. We will do both. Of course we will. Of course we will. It's not bad that's how we learn we go to the extremes a little bit like the Buddha himself he was Mr. Extreme really and we come back and find ourselves in our seat once again hmm. so for us to work this territory maybe just take a moment to sit right in at the doorway where the two worlds meet. Right, you don't have to change your posture, you can, if that helps. And I think often the formal posture does help. It does help us align with not seeking, not rejecting. this is the, um, from Seng San Ch- uh, Chinese Zen Master one verse from The Mind of Absolute Trust he says the great way isn't difficult for those who are unattached to their preferences so he doesn't say there are no preferences who are unattached to their preferences let go of longing and aversion and everything will be perfectly clear When you cling to a hair-breadth of distinction, heaven and earth are set apart. If you want to realise the truth, don't be for or against. The struggle between good and evil is the primal disease of the mind. Not grasping the deeper meaning, you just trouble your mind's serenity. As vast as infinite space, it is perfect and lacks nothing. But because you select and reject, you can't perceive its true nature. Don't get entangled in the world. Don't lose yourself in emptiness. Be at peace in the oneness of things and all errors will disappear by themselves. The things that makes it difficult to sit right at the threshold where the two worlds meet. You can probably you probably could fill in lots of answers right now at this threshold where there is no dividing the world up is because we have a habit to try and get a foothold, try and get a place to know ourselves. We d- and it's you know really understandable. We deeply do need to know ourselves, but the way we're used to doing it is by conceiving ourselves, by thinking about ourselves, by reflecting ourselves back to ourself. In fact, I am. Um, uh, May be very obvious. I'd never actually realised the word for conceit. So when we the Buddha uses it in terms of we're conceiving ourselves, right, as more than someone, as less than someone, or even as the same as someone, we're telling a story about ourselves. Conceiving, we're using concepts and conceiving ourselves. The word word conceit, of course, is from the same root as conceiving. Conceiving to think about to, and what it actually comes from in the Latin root is to take something, it means to take something. <clears throat> I, actually, I just had the thought it's a little bit like the, the second precept it's like taking something that's not offered, it's like we're taking ourselves um, to be more than less than the same as, and that's kind of extra, that's all extra. We want to find a foothold, and you know, this isn't, again, it's not esoteric, it's very normal. I um, I can think of many, many, that happens all the time, of course, just that sitting around the dinner table at home as a kid, and, you know, the photos would come back from the chemist or wherever they were, true print, or from the previous do, and my family would be looking at them, and, and my brother had this phrase, it even became a joke, he said, any of me? <laughs> are there any of me? It's like wanna see the ones of me. Right. Well the other story no, it's like where am I in all of this? Because we do need to know where we are in all of this, except we do it through this conceiving. And I we used to have this kind of thing, it happened in our family where you'd tell each other the, the people would tell us all who which relative belonged to which relative and I'd say, Well, Uncle Uncle Dick is married to Auntie May and their children are Mary and Bob and blah blah and then you'd hear all this story and then I'd say and what does that make me (laughs) 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 so what does that make me and they go oh so that makes you the second cousin twice removed. Happy <laughs> <I'll be> <laughs> Finally, <laughs> finally, I know. Rather than sitting in this uh, threshold where the two worlds meet, where you know, wasn't so interesting to me at that point, right? Oh, so it's very normal, and it's not wrong, and it's except if we take it to be the truth, and we do, of course, our definitions—that's what we do. We take it to be reality, and then we miss. We miss what our heart really longs to remember, we could say. And when we notice that it's happening here, you know, we build the story, there's one way that that's a kind of conceiving Conceiving, and um, Rob mentioned Meister Eckhart this morning. There was a really beautiful teaching I remember hearing um, in Shantivanam, which is a in the south of India. Which was a from Father Bede Griffiths. I don't know if any of you know about him, but he was a Catholic Benedictine, I think. But he was closely, uh, deeply steeped in the depth of the. Uh, religious heritage of where he was, also in South India. But um, Anyway, the teaching there from Meister Eckhart was the whole teaching of when in the Christian tradition when they talk about Jesus being conceived without sin, you know, the immaculate conception, which is always, you know, rather controversial kind of kind of story. But the, from that perspective of the of the depth of the understanding to conceive something without sin, means to, sin in in its deepest sense means separation. It doesn't mean we're bad, or it's just separation. It's the whole thing of separation. To conceive without sin is that there's no hint of separation in what is being conceived. There's no hint of world and spirit, of me and you, as ultimate realities. So it's without separation. It's got a purity to it actually so where do you notice that you try find your footholds on this retreat what do you conceive of to get a foothold for yourself you know and it's funny what our minds do where we try and you know where does that make me who does that make me what conclusions have you conceived of about yourself? Probably the is it, you know, I'm probably the worst one here or I'm probably the best one here. Maybe I'm the deepest one here. Maybe I'm the widest one here. You know? Maybe I'm just around the middle here. But somewhere trying to have a foothold for ourselves. So to hold that, hold that way kindly, really kindly, it's not the whole truth. It's, it is the construction that we've been talking about. So to get a sense of this threshold where the two worlds meet, there needs to be some capacity to tolerate um, not always having to conceive ourselves. Right? Not always having to reflect ourselves back to ourself. Does that make sense? Not always to have a, a place where we go, oh yeah, this is who I am right now, doing well, doing bad. Right? That will still happen, but uh, probably you're getting more of a sense of what it is to hang out and tolerate, as one teacher put it, tolerate the inconceivable. To be able to tolerate the inconceivable. And that sounds very grand, at least it does to my ear. It's really talking about the capacity to not know, to be able to not know. And the not knowing here is not the not knowing of ignorance. You know, in the tradition it's very clearly pointed to the avidya, the ignorance of not knowing, which is a not knowing and not wanting to know. It's like a, a, a dulling. A dulling of the um, being, and not knowing and are not wanting to know. But this kind of not knowing can contain very much the curiosity that we've been seeing here a lot. Right? The cur- oh, yeah, I want to know. But without having to immediately get there, to actually be able to tolerate and hang out in not knowing as an alive a very alive and vibrant kind of not knowing when we realize that we don't know actually we realize that we don't know exactly what this world is doing here I mean do you know (laughs) really we can have lovely ideas based on our insights about it, but if we start lining up by, behind them, without being conscious of what we're doing, we might miss the whole extraordinary mystery that's unfolding here. So to be able to not know, how are you, with not knowing. How does it suit your temperament? And again, it's not a vague not knowing. It's a little bit like... um Going into a, you know, a room that's dark, that's dark, and waiting for our eyes to adjust, waiting for our eyes to adjust so we can start to see what's here, how are you with hanging out in the dark? As it were, I mean, I'm not just talking externally, but when we're sitting with ourselves, and and there's a moment where we're not conceiving of ourselves and how badly or how well we're doing, but it's still, it's quiet, might be peaceful, might be really restful. Something has just let go. We've seen that movement of push and pull, and something relaxes. There's a quality of peace there and we breathe and we recognize that there's some depth to that how is it to hang out to let your eyes adjust as it were your inner eyes adjust to the dark or do you notice oh that was good right have a bit more of that how did I get that oh, I know how I got that that was because I had that nap was only 20 minutes was <laughs> <I mean. laughs> right and maybe maybe and then you go oh damn where's the where's the stillness gone right how is it to hang out and it doesn't mean that no thought may arise sometimes it'd be you know, absolutely not much thought the presence of thought itself is not the issue is not the problem How are you with not knowing? What tends to happen in your life when you don't know? Do you like to assert your knowing? It's like, yeah, I know you, you just did that. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. I know, I saw it. Right? We assert our knowing. Or we can have a self-image around not knowing and being very vague about ourself. Right? But that's not the not knowing that I'm speaking about. This not knowing Is full of potency, actually. Someone spoke about that today the sense of potentiality opening up in her practice. Something's really possible here. Things become possible, or sorry, we recognize that things become possible for us as we let go more and more of our attachment to the known. the sense of potentiality opens up like the potentiality of the night sky tonight pretty clear clear. hang out, go out and have a look moon's starting to get I think we're moving towards full aren't we Yeah. Mm -hmm. but that potentiality of that vast, black velvety magic Which we don't normally notice because we see the things in the sky, like, wow, there's the moon, which is beautiful. But the moon is able to be seen, of course, because of the backdrop. Things can be seen, start to show up more and more clearly as we deepen and get more of a taste more of a capacity, more of a taste, more of a love can also be of what I'm calling the dark, but it doesn't necessarily have to be dark. A lot of us have a whole another split with light and dark, of course. Right? It's another place. It's like spirituality is all about the light. Right? Because there is light, and we are light, and it's beautiful. But the light only shows up because of this vast... vast potential. We project onto the dark all of the things we haven't yet seen and understood. You know how that goes. Kids do it, the world does it. We project that that's where things hang out that we don't like. And we'd rather come into the old knowledge and the old security than develop the taste for what might be able to be seen and recognized and known in this mysterious, magical dark. there's another way of speaking about this to get a taste for is the silence of course maybe you can let your ears and your being not just your sense door ears but the sense of ourself as a, 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 a vessel of receptivity to receive the imprint of the silence right now breathe with it Know it. Let it touch you. See how much you can tolerate letting it touch you. Envelop you. Caress you. Sometimes one of our fears of the non-conceived, or the dark, we could say, is the fears that go around annihilation or or extinctions like, where am I? I don't want to disappear here. But as we practice and get more and more trust and faith, what actually does get annihilated, and it does, is the agitation. The agitation comes to rest. The agitation comes to cease. and we're left more and more sitting at the threshold where we may not even be conceiving two worlds anymore in that moment. But sitting deeply into where this practice takes us where the Four Noble Truths, as we see, as we, we bring it right from that perception and understanding and relaxation around the pulling and the pushing, right, the clinging, the letting go, these Four Noble Truths are supporting us and giving us the tools and the framework and the knowing. To come back to the seat that is ennobling, it's four noble truths, ennoble our life. Right? And not as a conception of, aren't I noble? That's another kind of story. Like the Buddha didn't go around North India going, hey, aren't I the, aren't I the smart radiant one? Right. Hey, look at that. Look at that teaching I just gave. Four Noble Truths. That's good. But no one's ever thought of that before. Right. It's just something awake. Just something beautiful and awake. Let's sit for a moment together in the silence.